Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Philippians and what it looks like to live a joy-filled life in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining my co-host Aaron and me in conversation today are Caitlin McNair and Joanne Holton. And Caitlin, you're going to tell us a little bit about how you and Joanne know one another. Yes, I have been on staff with Medical Campus Outreach for the last eight and a half years. And one of the things that we do through that ministry is to go on short-term trips called SMIs, which is kind of bizarre, but it stands for the Summer Medical Institute. And so the first SMI that I ever went to Peru on was in January of 2016. And we partnered with a team of missionaries that First Press sent out to be a part of MCO Cusco. And Ike and Joanne, that's Joanne's husband, were um, hosting us there and helping us run this campaign that we had allied health students partnering with us um, and joining us on. Allied health students, meaning physical therapists, occupational therapists, PA students. And so that is actually how I feel like our friendship blossomed is just being able to see their life in Cusco and in all the other cities in Peru that we visited and we did campaigns on. And it was just really sweet just to see the ways that her and Ike stepped out in faith and went to these hard places and um, the ways that they created a refuge and a home for not only their family, but for the other families that joined them in Cusco. And we love Caitlin. I bet you do. And having an experience like that together is special. So I'm glad that the two of you are on together today. Joanne actually didn't know Caitlin was going to be on. It was a bit of a surprise because we had someone who had to bow out at the last minute and Caitlin very kindly said yes. And so when I told Joanne, she said, and I quote, Oh yay! <laughs> so it's gonna be we're gonna we're gonna have a great time. Well, I'm gonna ask y'all the first things first question, and you're gonna answer the question. You can give us a brief bio on yourself first, and then answer the question. And our first things first question for today is: Describe the first time you learned to drive. And Joanne, you get to kick us off. Okay, I am Joanne Holton, married to Ike. And in my younger years, I was a special education teacher in the public school system. And then Ike and I served as missionaries in Cusco, Peru for five plus years with Mission to the World and Medical Campus Outreach team. There, there were five families on the original team. Ike and I have no children, but we have many, many nieces and nephews who are near and dear to our hearts. And now they're great nieces and nephews. So I'm a very proud aunt and great aunt. And as Caitlin mentioned, the families on our team in Cusco, we became very close. And so those children are kind of like our grandchildren too. So it's really sweet um, to have them. And one thing that I do enjoy is photography. I'm not a good photographer at all, but I really like to take pictures of people in nature mostly. And the question describe the first time you learned to drive I actually learned to drive on Bobby Jones Expressway oh my and <laughs> of course that was it was just a few years ago and Bobby Jones did look a tad bit different um, <laughs> back then but every Sunday we would go to church and we had to drive on Bobby Jones and we had to drive about seven or eight miles and so that was where I learned to drive and my sisters after me when it was their turn we would drive the car to church and we would drive it back home again and were people still holy when you got home (laughs) (laughs) probably not my mother's probably like "Ah." she needed to go to church for the assurance of her (laughs) salvation 
in the middle of driving. Well, I like your story about being aunts and uncles because, or an aunt and uncle to multiple nieces and nephews because I, my boys, well, I have two aunts who do not have children and have loved me so well growing up. And now they love my boys so well growing up. They don't miss a birthday or a holiday or an event. They drove down for my oldest graduation from Indiana. They drove down on a Friday. They went to graduation the Saturday. And they drove back up on a Sunday. And they're not exceptionally young. So just <laughs> there's a really special connection there. Love it's sweet. I mean, it's sweet for us. So I grew up here in Augusta and um, in Columbia County and graduated from Lakeside High School and went off to Mercer University for college. And there I got involved with Campus Outreach. And after graduation, I went on staff with Campus Outreach in Aiken, South Carolina. And then in 2013, actually brought me to Augusta. And that's how I started um, coming to First Pres and worshiping here. But I have been on staff with First Pres in some capacity ever since. I am one of two children. My older sister actually just moved to Batavia, Illinois, and she has um, two kids. And we just celebrated my niece's sixth birthday this past weekend. And it's a suburb of Chicago. So it was 18 degrees. It was very cold. But um, yes, I don't have any children, but I love being an aunt. And they call me Kiki, which is my favorite name. Yeah, my favorite name to be called. And When I started um, to learn how to drive, it was either in my neighborhood or in the Lakeside High School parking lot. But one time, my dad and I played a trick on my mom, and it was probably the third time I ever drove. Um, My mom was asleep in the backseat when we were coming home from Florida, and we stopped to get gas. She was still asleep, and so my dad was like, I think you should give yourself an opportunity to drive on the interstate. And so I drove on the interstate for three straight hours without my mom waking up. And then when she woke up, she was livid and so anxious. But um, we assured her that if she didn't wake up during my driving, it couldn't have been that bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So I grew up on a farm and farm kids drive early. So I definitely remember being behind the wheel when I was kind of probably a child, but (laughs) just around, you know, the little farm area. Mm -hmm. And then (laughs) my brother, on the other hand was probably driving around town a little bit a little on the young side um i also have a vivid memory of cutting the grass and running over a massive pine tree root and that got me off of driving privileges for quite a while i think it destroyed the mower um and then when it was my turn to learn to drive i guess in georgia you had to have the learner's permit for a year and like most children i did not enjoy the critique of my parents so for the entire year i chose not to drive don't come after my license state of georgia but i held the permit and never really drove with my parents so when i turned 16 they gave me a car and they're basically like good luck so i don't know i didn't i I, did i learn to drive is the real question have you run over any more pine tree roots that's the (laughs) question and if you haven't then i guess you learned perfect yeah brad cuts the grass Okay. Well, I'm trying to think of when I learned to drive and really nothing's coming to my mind as far as when I first learned to drive, except when I first really learned to drive a stick shift. And Oof. I don't know that I've told this story before on the podcast. Forgive me if I have. Aaron, are you no, not in your head? I don't, I don't know the story. I'm just having jarring memories of my own about driving stick shift. Okay. Well, I had moved out to Colorado and was living out there going to a small Bible school. I grew up in Indiana. And I was dating someone who lived in that town, didn't go to school, and did construction. And so he drove this cool manly truck, and it was a stick shift truck. And so occasionally he would help me, you know, sort of learn how to drive one of those. And it was, you know, just kind of fun to sort of learn. And I also worked at a church in that town with a youth group. And we were going on a uh, missions trip to Mexico. 
and I was going to drive and they were going to provide me a car. And you can tell where this is going, but I pulled up to the church that day and I had a little, they said, Amber, here are the keys to your Jeep Cherokee and it's in the parking lot. Just go pull it around. Blah, blah. I get into the car. It's a stick shift. There is no time to make any adjustments. I have four high school girls in my car, which I shudder now as a parent oh, to gosh. think that somebody <laughs> would drive my child who just learned to drive a stick shift from Colorado, which is not flat, to Mexico. But and it's downhill. You could just ride neutral. Yeah, you could. You could. <laughs> you got to go up and down some. So I will say that by the time I got to Mexico, I knew how to drive a stick shift, but it was not pretty. And there was a one particular time which I got stuck on a stoplight at the top of a hill. I can't remember where, but I just remember that stoplight turned red and green about four times before I made it through. And the fellow who had taught me to drive a stick shift had since broken up with me, but he was on the trip in his cool truck next to me. Come saying like, come on, you can do it. You can do it. And I was so <laughs> mad and so humiliated and so embarrassed. I will say that in driving that car from Colorado to Mexico, I think I probably thought a lot more highly of myself and my abilities uh, when I was just driving that truck around that little town in Colorado. But when I had to really get on with it, I realized that maybe um, I wasn't all that I was cracked up to be. I definitely needed some help. And we are in a part of our passage in Philippians today in which Paul is going to be speaking to his listeners about something that they need that is so much more than themselves. Up to this point in Paul's letter, he's been thanking the Philippian believers for their partnership in the gospel and encouraging, exhorting them to live out their unity in Christ in humble unity with one another. He has warned them away from selfishness and divisiveness that would taint what they share in Christ. But here now in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, he's providing them with a safeguard against something that would steal the joy they have in Christ. He wants them to keep what they have in Christ and not trade it for something that they have in themselves. So Aaron, go into that a little bit more. Yeah, this passage, I feel like it's, I mean, everybody that loves the Bible, when you read in the passage, it's like, this one's, this one's the good one, you know, this which is a good time to stop and say, if you haven't read it yet, hit the pause button, yeah. stop and read it. Cause you yeah. get more out of this conversation. If you do, it yeah. is a good one. It is so rich. And I think it pulls a lot of things that are just fundamental to our Christian faith into view. Just the, the grace that's on display here that you are seeing Paul say, Hey, I'm qualified. I've got a lot of earth badges. I've done. I had a lot of personal accomplishments. I come from a, a fine pre- pedigree within the Jewish faith, and all of those are rubbish. The real prize is truly Jesus, and to know Him and to worship Him and to be called into that love. That is true life. So we we're talking. He's working this theme of what is true worship. He's working this theme of what is true life, and giving us a choice. Like He's showing that these Judaizers are offering something that's Jesus plus. And how that is a gospel that will drown us if we are having to perform and to show how good we can be for God. That is that's not good news. And he's saying the good news is that we can depend on him. We can rest in him. Come and follow this savior. Come and worship this savior. Come and know his resurrection power. I do love the fact that he uses, you bring that out, he uses the word safeguard, and I don't know that I'd really thought about it in this way till you were saying that, but he's guarding what they have because he knows what it will cost them if they lose it. To add anything to the good news of Christ is to take away all of the abundance of the goodness of you have that you have and the freedom of belonging to Christ. Yeah, And, and Paul's very protective of that for mm-hmm. the Philippian believers. Yeah, I mean, when you boil it down to the fact that you can have personal goodness and morality and self-righteousness 
or you can know the power of the resurrection and true worship and true fellowship with the Savior. It feels like the obvious choice, but I think sometimes when we're out in the wild and living that out in real life, it can become convoluted. We can see other things that feel like a good thing that we want to add to our salvation. And it's just at the end of the day, when we put it down on paper in black and white, it feels obvious. Like when we read the scripture, it's we know that choosing dead works and false religion and morality and self-righteousness is a dead end road. But I think sometimes we can stumble into that. And that's a warning to the Philippian reader or the Philippian listener. And it's also a warning to us as readers today. Well, and part of that is because he makes that statement. If anybody else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. And don't we all want to put confidence in something and mm. something that we feel like yeah. that we are in charge of? So yeah. confidence in what I do feels mm-hmm. like I have some level of control on that. And then of course, He's trading, he's saying everything that I put confidence in before is nothing compared to the glory of Christ. And of course, there is some self-glory attached with self-accomplishment, and we are drawn to that. We're drawn Mm -hmm. to control and glory of ourselves. We don't like to turn that over to the Savior. There's part of us that still does not want to give that up, Um, but that's what he came to save us from and to Mm -hmm. give us something better, something better to glory in, something better to trust in. It is such a a call to remember that the Spirit of God is the one who brought our hearts to life. He's brought our dead hearts to life, to true life, and he's continuing to work that out on us. He's saying, keep going. Uh, See, look at the dogs, look at the mutilators, look at these guys over here. They're, They're doing things that are not going to help you. Don't be distracted. Keep your eyes on the prize. Jesus is the prize. And he's just kind of starting to beat that drum at this point. Yeah. Well, and that's how he starts out this passage, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And so Melissa Kruger in her Philippians study that we're going through, one of the first questions she asks as she gets into her application questions are, do you regularly give thanks to God for God? And that is a good foundational place to start as we are working through this passage. What is it about God that causes you to rejoice? Caitlin? Well, to answer that question, probably not as often as I should, but I think one thing that I have been regularly thanking God for is just the fact that He Himself is God and I am not, so that He is in control. And so I keep coming back to Psalm 115, verse 3, when it says that our God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. And even the lyrics from that child's him that he's got the whole world in his hands and it's very comforting to me to know that he is ruling and reigning that he is in control that none of these things are surprises to him and that he can care intimately for me and know what I need and be in control of executing his good plan for me and my life, as well as my friends, my family members, the nations, because nothing is too outside of his control. And so um, I think the other aspect that I feel like I regularly thank the Lord for is found in Isaiah 30 verse 18, which says that he longs to be gracious to you and therefore he will rise up to show you compassion for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And just even thinking that he is active, that he is moving around me. And so these things in my life that feel out of control or on the news that feel out of control, but know that he is reigning over all of these things and that he is working them all together for our good, but also for his glory. Yeah, and I bet you see that even more at this time. Caitlin's about to make a big life transition with multiple pieces having fallen in place and some that still haven't fall, fallen in place. And 
So I can see why at this particular time you're finding those characteristics of God to be especially comforting. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Joanne? One of the first things I think about is God's faithfulness. He he is a God who's faithful. And we see it all throughout Scripture, which I love seeing that with the Israelites. And even though they were stiff-necked and stubborn, as I often am, he still was faithful. And I see it in my own life, too, as I have struggled with life decisions, health concerns, family crises, relationship turmoil, feelings of being just insecure and unworthiness, being um, feeling unworthy. He's been faithful to walk beside me through all of that. And that it doesn't always make it easier. In fact, most of the time, it's probably not easier. But he's still with me. And I know he's never going to leave me or forsake me. And I love the verse about he's faithful to complete a good work in mm-hmm. us. And that that just that encourages my heart because so often I can think, ah, I can feel like a failure. I can feel this or that. But he he's faithful. He is faithful to me. Um, and Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. That's a verse that I cling to also. I, I think another one of his characteristics, his sovereignty. And I love the fact, it just brings me su- such comfort that nothing happens to me that doesn't pass through his hands first. Mm. And I mean, whether it's in my own personal life or in this crazy world right now. He's the one in control. I don't have to be the one, even though I struggle with control and I want to fix things. It's not up to me. And I really don't have to worry about it. He's going to be the one to take care of that. And it's something that I can rest in. Um, Revelation 411 says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. I think that gratitude is one of those spiritual barometers for me. Like when I'm feeling more baseline irritated versus grateful for a God who loads our day with benefits. So I think when I'm I'm feeling that sense of distrust, maybe even of the Lord, that he doesn't give good gifts and I have to figure this out on my own and I have to work out my own plan and I have to strive. And there, that is just number one, my, my gratitude's off. I can't see the beauty all around me. Then I know that I need to do a little heart check and ask the Lord, help me purify my heart, make me right before you. And I think this is a, what what Melissa Kruger is getting at. It's like, what is it that we are truly grateful for about who the Lord is? And as we're working through these verses, we see that Paul is just bringing into view just one of the characteristics of God that we should be faithful for is that he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He cloaks it on us. He runs toward us with a ring and a robe and says, you're mine. I've covered you in my righteousness. And it's not that you don't have to live up to these ceremonial laws and these um uh, you know, the dietary laws and the circumcision and all these things that we've that I've asked of you to practice in the Old Testament so that you might know a heart of worship. They were never moot points. They were there for a reason. They were to reveal even in the Old Testament. God is saying like these are a window into my heart for you and to bring your heart unto myself. Like I want you to have a heart that loves me. This was always an 
internal focus. Like God was always pursuant of the heart. And here we see this come into view that it is the heart that is no is not these external righteous ritual rituals that is God is trying to exact out of us. So as we think about just our culture today, can we identify any rituals around you that you're tempted to add to the work of Christ as a means of salvation? And how do you see this harming your own faith and perhaps even spreading out to the health of the church? Well, when I was young, the church that I grew up in, at, at the beginning of each new year, we received a box of envelopes. Each person received a box of envelopes. And there were 52 envelopes in the box, one for each week. And it actually had the date on it for the Sunday of that week. So on this envelope, there was a place to write your name. And then there was a list of things with a box beside each item. And each Sunday, you would bring the envelope and turn it in. And the items that you checked off were things like, did you bring your Bible to church with you? Did you read your Bible daily? Um, Are you going to the church service today? Did you bring a tithe? Did you participate in visitation? And what that meant was, did you invite someone to church? And so on Saturday night, we would, my sisters and I, we would get out our envelopes and prepare them. And it was something that we did every Saturday night. So essentially... It, it was a ritual. And these are things, that, as I th- was thinking back on this, th- these are things that I do today. I don't do the envelopes, but I attend church on Sunday. I bring my Bible. I may invite someone to church. And in my mind, I have to be careful because I can find myself checking off those boxes. And these, they're all good things. It's good to attend church, to bring your Bible with you. They're all good things. And a checklist is not always a bad thing either. But what it comes down to is, why am I doing them? What's the motive of my heart and all that? And if I'm doing these things simply as rituals, then that's where the problem is. As Paul says, I'm putting my confidence in the flesh. When I do that, when I'm doing it just as a ritual, I'm putting my confidence in the flesh and not not in Christ. And what I'm doing is I'm focusing on my outward behavior instead of my heart. And the danger in that is I can end up ignoring or even neglecting my relationship with God. And the re- the relationship is what God wants. That's that's what he created us for. And I think about um, Westminster Shorter Catechism and question number one says, what is the chief end of man? I just love this question because for so long I was like, what is my purpose in life? Well, that the answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that that's my purpose. And that that's what God wants in a relationship with him. But if I'm just doing these rituals, I don't. I don't have that. I don't have that relationship. And also, I mean, it's not the gospel when it's just a ritual. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I love that because it's so straightforward. We're, we're not under the old covenant anymore, and our salvation is by grace. It's, and it's not by any works that we do or rituals that we have. What a clear and almost probably to some people unbelievable example of you had to fill out a check list checkbox yes. yeah. like, wow and i'm just thinking about your parents probably had wonderful intentions with those things because like you said those are, are good things mm-hmm. to do but how easy of course is it to translate when i hand my paper in and all my boxes are checked yeah i'm, I'm a little taller than 
my sister's sitting next to me who only checked three of hers you exactly. know, or whatever. And kind of like what you said is not that those things are bad, but when the motive for those things is to you know, justify your worth or prove your spirituality, then they're not flowing out of, of an appreciation of what you have been given, but in some effort probably to attain something that you want for yourself. And so you make that, that, that um, you bring out the Westminster Confession, glorify God and enjoy him forever. And self-righteousness glorifies ourselves and makes it very difficult to enjoy the Lord at all. But you could do those exact same things you can, like you said, come to church, invite somebody, bring your Bible, and absolutely glorify the Lord and the righteousness He has given you and enjoy Him in the process. Yeah, I think even just the way you said that, it looks so completely different. Like some of our outer movements may even be the same, mm-hmm. but that heart motive. And when you're talking about, Joanne, the fact that we enjoy God, this was a, a revelation to me, like a, as I've grown up in the around the church and just to understand that we were created to enjoy God and we can't really enjoy him unless we know his true character. So we must read his word. We must be exposed to the graces of all that the church has to offer and the fellowship of the saints. Those things are important, but it is not the means that he, he said, I'm moving toward you. I'm moving toward you in my grace to deliver you. And I think that is what he's talking about when he's saying that, talking about that resurrection power. It's like we can get that badge of morality and feel really awesome about ourselves and do all of these good works. And we may be doing some of those same good works, but we're fueled by the Holy Spirit instead of being fueled by our ability and our own aptitude and our desire to look good on the outside. Well, and if you get to this place and you think, oh, crud, I I might have some mixed motives here. Just last night I was going for a walk and just being like, Lord, where is my joy? Like I am doing a lot of things that I probably should be doing and I'm probably not going to stop doing them. But right now I just want to quit because they just feel self-centered, bogged down. I feel angry and frustrated with you and all those sorts of things. And just in that moment, just repenting and asking and and really wishing that in that moment, all of a sudden I'd be flooded with this influx of absolute warmth toward, toward everything I had to do because I had readjusted, but I wasn't. But even just coming today and talking about this passage and saying the Lord just gently reminded me, what has Jesus done for you and glorying in that? But part of it's confession because part of the time you just get yourself to that place where you're doing the thing, but you ain't got no joy in it. you know. Mm. And for me, sometimes that's just confession and part of that living out that Christian faith is that repentance and faith and asking and just being glad that, you know what, the Lord's work has covered my twisted heart too yeah. and my twisted motives. You know? Well, an experience of the resurrection power means that we have died. We have yeah. walked through death. So I think sometimes when we're walking through that death or that suffering, like we feel that that is very real. And I think we have very much the extension of the Lord's hand to call out to him and to cry out to him and name the suffering, name the death and ask for his help and assistance. So I love that you're modeling that beautifully. Well, it's not beautiful what's going on. I'll tell you that. <laughs> what do you think, Caitlin? Well, I think even just from um, y'all's comments, it just reminded me of that passage in Isaiah that says even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And just even that we really do need 
God's word, the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of um, believers to recalibrate our hearts. So that was different than the question that, or the answer that I had originally prepared, but just even thinking that in those times of confession to really just kind of sift out, what am I incorrectly believing about God or having people in your life just say, that's not God's character. Mm -hmm. Like that is a a good friend. Yeah. That's a distortion of um, who you know God to be. So that's from the enemy Mm -hmm. and just to call those things out. But um, like I mentioned, Joanne and I met really on an SMI to Lima, Peru in 2016, but also we served together this past summer in Tijuana, Mexico, and then in San Diego. So I feel like that we address some of these things with the people that we partner with there at Center City Church. So they are church planters in San Diego and are kind of experiencing this post-Christian worldview a little bit more than what we are currently in Georgia. And so I was really struck by some of these things that are seeping into our culture and kind of what they're able to pinpoint there and how we are starting to see it here in Georgia. But one thing that G. Joe Joseph told us about that was super helpful was cafeteria Christianity. So just picking and choosing what to believe or how to live based on our preferences and not what the word says. And I think another thing um, is kind of a karma-based relationship with God, which fixates on what we do for God to grant us the things that we are entitled to. So exactly what you guys were saying, especially Aaron in the beginning when you said a Jesus plus mentality and kind of with Paul's pedigree to be able to say like, well, we're entitled to those things because we're doing doing these X, Y, and Z activities. Like we're filling out these envelopes. We're checking off each of these boxes. We should be entitled to this joy, like what you were saying, Amber, because that's how God works. It's a kind of a checks and balances. If we do those things and he's supposed to reward us according to what we think we deserve, instead of believing that he's in control and that he's given us the greatest gift in his son, that we don't need anything else. And that resurrection power is working within us to show us that right now we might feel like the suffering servant, like Jesus himself was called, but it doesn't end there. We have eternity to look forward to, and we have the opportunity to be sanctified, to be made more like Jesus, even in our lack of joy or our stunted or dulled hearts, because he's so much bigger than even these problems that are rituals that are seeping into our culture. Yeah, Paul understands this. I mean, he uses in these verses, he uses himself as an example of one who took confidence in his own righteous acts. They were spiritual and they were actually in some ways in line with what the Lord had prescribed. But the heart motive to them was completely out of line. And his righteousness was all about him so much so that when the Savior came, that he claimed to be waiting for, he didn't even recognize him until Jesus came and opened his eyes. He was blind because his eyes were primarily on himself and his adherence to the law, Paul's adherence to God's law without a true love for God himself was actually the reason for his guilt. So his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus road opened his eyes to his guilt and gave him a heart for all who like him might be seeking to establish their own righteousness through the law and apart from Christ. And I think that's why Paul is so uh, desirous to make sure that the Philippians are protected from this mindset because he knows full well what it is to live in light of it. He's eager to point out that all the benefits that come through Christ to the Philippians come only through Christ with nothing, nothing added on top. So we are kind of been, obviously, we're already in this realm 
talking about some of the rituals and things that we put in our lives that would help us to feel like we are entitled to God's favor. And to expand that a little bit, what ways do we seek to establish our own righteousness before God? And how do those efforts compare to the actions you take when you are living as one who finds her righteousness in God? So that kind of idea of you may do some of the same things, but how are they different depending if you're striving for something or if you're living out of something? So I think for me, it's a lot of what um, I was previously talking about just feeling like that sense of entitlement or that I'm deserving, that God must be more well pleased with me because I'm in ministry or because I've been able to check off these boxes, which is absolutely not true. And I just think that that's kind of like a, it was a revolutionary um, moment for me just to know that in God's economy, A plus B doesn't always equal C. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to be beautiful. It just might be different than I necessarily um, could have conceived it to be. But I feel like that that even seeps into my prayer life. Like I'm entitled to have certain prayers granted, my wants given. And I think I also notice this a lot when people come to me for advice or when they're asking for counsel, because I become prideful when people come to me because I want them to do what I want them to do, which may be very different than what the Lord has called them to. And I think a lot of times I also forego boundaries for people pleasing because I want people to be grateful to me, not in the ways that they could be grateful to God because of me, but that I want the glory. And um, I want people to appreciate and praise me instead of giving that honor to God. And when I was in college, one of the pastors at the church that I was going to said that it would be like him going to a UGA football game and and if they score, then not cheering for the Bulldogs, but to cheer and say like, yeah, way to go me. I did awesome. And so I feel like even with Christian work, I find myself doing that. Like instead of like, wow, look at all the Lord has done that I get to be a part of instead of being like, wow, Caitlin, look what you've done and how you've contributed. And so I feel like that the adverse where I want to be um, in this is actually, I feel like beautifully illustrated in this quote by Corey Tim Boom. So obviously y'all might be familiar with her story, but she was in a concentration camp and she held firm to her faith the whole time she was even in prison and used that as an opportunity to even proclaim the gospel time and time again to the women that she was imprisoned with. And she wrote the book, The Hiding Place, about her experience. And she did a lot of talks and engagements where she was just able to declare the Lord's faithfulness over and over. And she has this quote, says, when people come up and give me a compliment, Corey, that was a good talk, or Corey, you were so brave. I take each remark as if it were a flower. And at the end of the day, I lift up the bouquet of flowers that I've gathered throughout the day and say, here you are, Lord, it's all yours. And just even thinking of like, I want that to be my mentality. Like I want it to be just in sheer appreciation for who God is and the ways that he has fulfilled his character to be faithful to me, like Joanne said, to be gracious to me and compassionate, to be my creator who has gifted me in this way. And that it's all glory and honor and praise back to him instead of feeding my ego or my sense of self. I think about some of the idols I struggle with. That's where this kind of, I think, comes out for me. But approval, I'm a real people pleaser. And I, I like approval. And I also, I want to be in control of things. You know, it can be, like Caitlin was saying too, it can be good things. It can be ministry opportunities. It can be being a missionary in another country or my daily quiet times, serving somebody in need. Again, they can be good things, but if I'm doing them for the wrong reason, 
selfish motives. Like I said, I want that approval. I want someone to say, oh, you did a great job, or I want to look good to other people. I can quickly become overwhelmed and depleted trying trying to do and it it saps my joy when you mentioned that earlier amber and that's that is when i struggle when my joy gets sapped and it but it's also a flashing red light for me to know okay something is wrong here and i can struggle with the doing and also with the not doing because if there's something i'm supposed to do or something i'm asked to do and i don't do it then i can feel like i've let people down And I can feel like I've let God down because I didn't do what I was supposed to do. So there again, I I don't feel worthy. I don't feel good about things. I end up feeling a lot of fear, guilt, and unworthiness. And again, it comes back to what's my heart motive. And that's where when I live uh, finding my righteousness in Christ, it's totally different. I can rest and take joy in the fact that I'm a daughter of the King. That is, I don't know, I love that. And I have His righteousness. My worth is in Christ. I don't ha- and I don't have to try to measure up like I do with everything else or like I try to do. And if I don't do something I'm supposed to do, um, I haven't let God down. So I think it, it's just, it's resting and just finding joy in my true identity I love that y'all are bringing out this idea of joy and rest and just an easiness of character that we know when we're in Christ. So let's think a little bit about the benefits that when you're united with Christ that you're particularly grateful for in light of the passage that we're looking at today, particularly those last few verses. I think one thing that I'm struck by is that He's not far away, that He wants us to be known and He allows us to know Him that our righteousness comes from him. And I just even think that as we've talked about people pleasing and our um, desire to be approved of and the fact that it really doesn't matter because Christ himself has given us his righteousness and that we are approved of because we don't have to show our records, but we have Christ's perfect record. And um, just even thinking in Psalm 57, when it says that we can cry out to the Lord because he himself vindicates us. And that's through his son. That's through what Paul is talking about in this passage in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. And it doesn't matter if people don't like us. It doesn't matter if we please them or not, because we have a perfect record that was earned by Christ. And also, it's just a comfort that eternity is coming and that um, even though the world is broken and hard and heavy, eternity is coming. And it reminds me of that song that we sing a lot at night church, but it's by the Gettys. It says, my worth is not in what I own, but just this one line that says, two wonders here that I confess my worth and my unworthiness. And just even thinking that it really is so beautiful that it's nothing that we've done, that we are so unworthy, but because of Christ, He has given us his worth. And it really is remarkable to think about. Mm -hmm. I really focused on verse nine, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith, which Caitlin um, was talking about also. But that is just encouraging to me that I can rest in his righteousness, and it's not dependent on me. I, just, I feel like I'm such a mess that 
I don't want anything to be dependent on me. And this is not dependent on me. And God accepts me fully on the merits of Christ. And I can take joy in that. And where else can you be accepted fully? Well, Joanne and Caitlin, thank you both for joining us today. Listeners, we hope you will join us again next week. You can take us for a little walk on the canal while the weather is still cool and spring is in the air. Joy Brown and Margaret Daniel will be joining us to talk about Philippians 3.12 through 4.1. We hope you listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sees. It is the Lord rises with healing in his wings when comforts are declining he grants the soul again a season of your shining to cheer it after the rain 